This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm the producer at Westwards. And today I am talking to Emma O'Neill Sandham. How are you, Emma? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, James. So, Emma, you're one of our, um, I don't know if graduating is the word, I guess it is, uh, fellows from the last batch of Western Sydney Emerging Writers Fellows. How's the program been? You had fun? I've had a fantastic time. It's um, It's been uh, blood, sweat and tears and joy and all the emotions. Um, yeah, I've learned so much. Um, yeah, I think I was reflecting on it the other day that it's kind of the first, well, not professional, but, you know, I've kind of done a lot of little workshops and things as, as a student and this was kind of, you know, working with someone, it was actually quite a shift um, to be kind of treated as a professional and someone that's looking at the at my manuscript or something that might actually get published where before it was kind of like a bit of a hobby so yeah it's kind of been um yeah very 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 helpful so someone how was your uh, your mentor how was she, she she's amazing yeah, yeah she's um very um incredible at what she does um but also yeah very um supportive and even when i look back on some of the things i sent her which were horrific and she was still <laughs> supportive so i think it's kind of like yeah you need someone that's going to subtly tell you how to um, improve without kind of burning you down. Crushing, so, crushing you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard task, I think. Not everyone has those skills, so. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad that, you, that it's been valuable for you. Um, so what part of your residency or part of your fellowship, rather, was to put together a video? Ordinarily, we would have been taking you out to schools or something, but because of COVID things, you did a video, and you did a video on writing biography. Uh, so what I thought I'd talk to you today about was in that video, you talk quite a bit about the techniques and the, the methods and tips, if you like, for how to interview someone and, and draw out their really interesting story. Because I think it probably is apparent to everyone that if someone just fills in a form of, you know, the most basic things, you may miss the more interesting story. And I, I know we've had James Knight on, on in the past talking about finding the thread in someone's story and unpicking that. So I suppose it follows on a little bit from that. So I thought we would talk about that, if that's okay. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, <clears throat> it's definitely something that um, I've learnt to do over the years and, and you look back early on and you realise that you probably haven't um, approached it the best. Um, I suppose I, what kind of started, you know, many things have got me interested, but I can start with a little analogy that kind of sums up what could be missed um, if that's okay because it's sure. quite a funny story and it kind of sums up the, the the heart of what you're trying to do I think is trying to make someone feel really comfortable and and make them see themselves through your eyes I think um, often what happens is people don't realize how interesting they are and I was living overseas working at a university and I was um working for a magazine and I interviewed this archaeologist and he was telling me some fantastic things about different I think it was litmus testing and soil all very interesting things in the context of his work. And as I was leaving, I said to him, oh, look, if there's anything else interesting that, you know, you, you come across, you know, let me know. And as I said that, he turned to me and said, oh, well, I have the mermaid. And I was like, what? <laughs> and what he had, so in Japan, um, I don't know what era it was, obviously thousands and thousands of years ago, they used to um, sew monkeys to fish um, and sell them to fishermen who 
thought them to be mermaids and they would have them on their ship as kind of as good luck charms. And so he had these um, incredible artifacts that, you know, and I kind of, it always makes me laugh that, you know, I sat down with him for 45 minutes and the last thing he thought was interesting was this mermaid. And that is the most interesting thing. So I think the kind of art or suppose or, or kind of the process of, of making people see themselves the way you see them and, and making them see how interesting their lives are because often they don't realise it and that's kind of part of what, what you kind of have to do, I think. Oh, I, I have questions immediately. Yes. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will warn anyone, especially young people listening, that if you do Google this, um, they don't look like the Little Mermaid from the Disney films. They're quite horrific, but um, you can Google monkey, fish, Japan, fishermen, and, and they're, they're, they're real. They're a thing. Well, <laughs> my initial question has to be, please tell me that the monkeys and the fish weren't both still alive when they were sewn together. I hope not. I, um, I, I... When, when you said they were selling monkeys with fish sewn to them, I thought... You're going to tell me that you know that the fish would dive down, the monkey would grab other fish and come up, and it was. And well, that's I thought, actually. Do you know what? That's there's the start of a whole. Sounds like something novel. from a, chi- a China Mevil book, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, and in fact, what you've just done is you've just stumbled. I'm always looking for. I guess this is kind of relevant to what we're talking about. I'm always looking for a really catchy um, title for. <laughs> I think. I have the mermaid might be the, the title of this video. Oh, this monkey uh, fish, yeah. <laughs> monkey, monkey fish. Looking for the monkey fish. Yeah. You, you will, will. By the time I get this out, we will have a better title, perhaps. But that's not a bad starting point. So that, that's an interesting way to start this. Do you think the, the the mistake you made there was in your own mind typecasting them as being an archaeologist and going, okay, well, so they're they're just doing archaeology stuff, and they actually is that? Do you think that was your mistake? Yeah. I think that was definitely part of it. And I also kind of think about um, the kind of questions that I asked. And I think in the video, um, I talk about this, that, you know, if you ask questions that are very, um, that aren't open-ended and they don't have follow-up questions, then you're going to get a very kind of stock standard response and and the interaction is going to be very much, much that. And as you said, yeah, I probably went in going, okay, yep, cool you know, soil, data, I don't know, and, and had questions prepared and, and I probably wasn't open-minded enough to kind of, yeah, um, you know, let it be about that person and, and and really listen to kind of elements of what he said. And, and you know, he may have actually hinted at it during the interview and, and I didn't kind of latch on to that. So there's different elements I think you can do in your preparation and, and the process that, you know, while you're interviewing someone that can actually lead you to those, I'm going to call them um, monkey fish moments. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that's a title. There's our title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I think there's, um, yeah, I mean, obviously there are people that are very happy to talk about themselves, but I think that there's a, yeah, I think there's a, when you do sit down and interview someone, as you said, you know, it's not just having a list of questions, it's, it's meeting them, making them feel really comfortable, but also kind of having that, dynamic relationship where you're listening to what they're saying and you're kind of, you know, having follow-on questions where you think there might be something and, and just being, yeah, having it a bit more of a dynamic um, process as opposed to just ticking boxes and getting answers. So um, you, before you did your Masters of Creative Writing at Macquarie Uni, you uh, did your your degree in media studies at Sydney. I did. So 
does that make you a journalist as such? Is that is that what, what we can call you a journalist? Like a, a former journalist, maybe. I think um, back when there was journalism, I I, no. I the last time I worked at a newspaper. Um, it was the time when everyone used to gather around the news agents on Saturday and wait for the paper to come out. So it was um, before kind of social media had latched on and before stories were kind of changing live in front of you. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely changed a lot since I kind of last was in a working newsroom. Um, but in terms of the interviewing skills, yeah, it's obviously that that is constant really. Um, obviously it's different, the content people are creating these days, but the skills and you know what you need to do to sit down with someone are quite similar. So when, when you're a when you're a journalist who's interviewing someone about something, you usually have an endpoint you're trying to get to. You know what did you see, or how did things end up this way, or what are the the you know the, the mechanisms behind this situation, or or whatever. When you're writing biography, it's a little bit different. Perhaps are you looking for are you, do you ever go in there looking for a, a story that you think you're you're going to find and you find yourself in a completely different place? Absolutely, yeah. I think, um, you know, interviewing someone in a journalistic context, um, as you said, you're kind of just looking for that colour element. You often have all the facts and you're just kind of wanting them to to kind of add that colour. In, in a biography, um, it's really about the process more and this is what I'm learning more and more. And um, in the video, I spoke to Caroline Wilkinson from the mm. palliative care unit and she explored this more that the actual process of asking questions is you know in the process in the context of biography is actually more important than the book you get at the end because the process itself can be quite you know therapeutic for the person talking about themselves and so I kind of think that in you know the journalist context obviously it's the end point you're trying to get a story out of the interview so that's it's quite transactional in a way um, and yet the biography, you know, you're actually sitting down and the process itself is going to be the end game. It's not the work at the end. Um, if you're doing it with a family member or things like that, obviously if you're doing a biography of a famous person and you're ghostwriting it, that might be different. But, um, yeah, definitely they're, they're kind of two different um, approaches, I would say. And with the, with the biography, um, yeah, it's also, and I think I talked about this in the video, it's understanding that theory that, you know, that's how they see their lives. You know, you're not trying to interrogate them of what's true or what's not. Um, and I think there's a quote that I, um, there's kind of theories of biography and I, um, yeah, that it says here that kind of the theories of biography have kind of gone from gatekeepers of truth, which is kind of what journalists are, to postmodernists who interrogate the possibility of such a notion. So when you sit down with someone who kind of is talking about their life, you're not kind of going, well, hang on a second, how could that have happened in 92? You know, that's actually how they see their lives. Or if they thought Christmas of 92 was the best family Christmas ever, and yet the wife said that was the worst Christmas ever, it doesn't matter. It's their life and it's their story. So I think that, um, you know, making it, understanding when you're going in that it's actually their perception of their own life and that's fine. You're not trying to cut them down or trying to get the truth. I mean, you're getting a truth, a form of truth, and a, and a you know, a one one I suppose one one view of what their life is, if that makes sense. So in that example you gave, where he says best Christmas ever, she says worst Christmas ever. Yeah. Is that the moment when you go not not so much in an interview setting, or maybe it is an interview setting? Is that the moment when you go? 
there's a little angle there that I need to pursue. Why, why do they find it so different? And then what are the wider ramifications of that? Absolutely. And that's um, <clears throat> anything like that. And that's when you can kind of use other prompts as well. So, you know, if, if that's something that, you know, there's this Christmas someone's talking about, um, you've got your list of questions and that's when you're trying to get to that vivid detail. So you could kind of say, oh, okay, great. That Christmas, um, and what I talked about in the video is that impact of specific questions to get to that vivid detail. So um, if you're going to kind of go, oh, you know, what was cooking? What did you eat that Christmas? Or, you know, who was there? Um, you can kind of really specific questions can result in really um quite sensory responses and that can kind of lead to more detail and then the other two prompts that I talk about as well is kind of photos and music so if they do kind of talk about this Christmas if you ask them to bring photos along that can be something that's really tangible that can really unlock more details about that memory Um, because I think the thing about biography is that you know it's all coming from memory and memory itself is so fallible and 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 kind of questionable but you're you know you're entering someone's life through their memory so anything that you can help them help with do that whether it be photos or music or um really specific questions that kind of dig into that memory I think that can be helpful do you think that's related in any way I suppose it is the this sort of growing growing field of understanding with people with dementia that you know music unlocks people's interactive interactivity and their ability to do that and so forth is that do you think that's all linked in there absolutely i think there's um i mean there's the done research that there's a actual physiological element where the, the part of the brain that is connected to music is um seems to kind of dig quite quickly into those memories and i've got a quote here that was quite good and they're talking about the connection of autobiographical memories um, that music has been in, identified as important in the construction of autobiographical memories. So you play music and obviously it's a very evocative because it kind of goes straight to feeling, but it also kind of reminds people maybe who they were quicker than maybe other prompts might be. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The other, the other day, um, my daughter and I were driving back and uh, my wife's out of town at the moment because she's um, in lockdown in Queensland, but we were in the car and I we were looking for something to play and uh, I found an album that I haven't listened to for 30 something years. It was, um, I'm not going to say which one it was. It was kind of corny, but. I'll go uh, on. <laughs> it was, it was uh, the Lionel Richie one with Penny Lover on it. Oh, wow. And I put that on and because that is the album that my wife and I listened to when we were in year 11 and first started going out. And she wow. had to go away for a long holiday. And so we would listen to this, you know, at the same time in, in different. Um, but the weird thing was that as I was listening to that song or that, that album, I could, I predicted every little fluctuation in his voice, every grace note in the, in the music. And I found myself immediately going back to that, that feeling of being a, 16 year old with a girlfriend out of town and I found myself feeling quite emotional just listening to this yeah, music. wow so it shows how like how much you can cut through um, yeah, yeah. and your story also reminds me so one of the suggestions I was struggling during my fellowship with getting into the um, time so my manuscript I'm working on is set in the 90s and someone suggested that I actually play music and go back yes. to what music I listened to in the 90s and think about kind of 
what sounds would be in the character's bedroom. And so, you know, driving around the car, you know, in my car, going back to Jeff Buckley albums when I was kind of, you know, your brooding university student and, and you know, baby animals and all these things that, like, just they create a time really mm. quite effectively. So, um, and I think that's kind of what in, you were saying that earlier before this started that you kind of get students to interview characters. But these prompts, kind of photos and music, you can kind of incorporate those as well, I think, into kind of, conjuring characters because yeah it's really um yeah when I started doing that it was just so a great way to get clicked into a world of, of what I was writing quite quickly which was quite shocking how easily it kind of was like oh Jeff Buckley's playing oh yeah cool there's no Facebook oh yeah this, this is like you got to pay for the bus like you just start to kind of remember all these things about that time well, I remember my second novel um which was written in 90 98 I had a it's, a, it's a road book and the, the two characters are heading north to Queensland to, you know, to take photos and stuff and in a, in a 1970-something Kingswood. And the girl, Gunner, the main character, she has to keep stopping and finding a payphone so she can call her parents and tell them she's okay. And I'm thinking, <laughs> nobody has payphone. What's a payphone? No one knows what that is anymore. It's funny that you said that. So at the moment I'm writing, so, yeah, I'm, I'm like, every time someone, a character needs to make a phone call, they obviously have to find a payphone. And I have to start to think about where payphones were. Like, obviously, they weren't in residential areas often. Like, I was kind of having to think about, oh, Jesus, yeah, they were at where the shops were. Like, you have to think about... And also how public phone calls were back then. Like you had to call, if you were going to call a boy, you had to call in the middle of the house with everyone listening. Like there was no, you know, it was all very, very public. It was well, quite... I was, I was re-watching The Sopranos. I'm on my second run through The Sopranos um, at the moment. And, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a, <laughs> a scene in there where AJ comes downstairs and starts remonstrating with, with his sister because he wants to get on the internet and she's on the internet. On the, no, she's making yeah. a phone call. She <laughs> yeah, wants to get right. on the internet. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, reminiscing about the 90s, good times. Yeah, good times. All that casual racism and homophobia yeah. <laughs> from Friends, for example. <laughs> I watched the reunion of Friends the other day and I was just like, that show had a lot of issues. Oh, <laughs> you a don't very we white actually, show, we wasn't started it? started watching it again and we're just like, we keep saying, well, it, 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 that's the time. It's funny, it just reflects the time, obviously. And that's what um, in my uh, talk, I talked about that thick description of someone where it's not just what they did, but the times that they lived. So, you know, that kind of what they were watching and, and the politics of that time, it kind of does permeate into who someone is. And so if you are going to write a biography of someone, it's kind of, you have to kind of contextualise that as well. It's not just, oh, where did you go to school and this? It's like each, you know, there's so much that influences that, you know, even from the shows you watch and, and things like that. So in a sense, we're talking about setting as much as anything, because the time that someone lives is really a part of the setting as much as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, yeah, absolutely. And I think when I was kind of researching biography and, and you know, that's what they were talking about, that, you know, you just to describe someone properly, you have to take into consideration the time that they lived and and the historical events. I mean, even now, like, you know, writing about a family member, as a lot of people are doing now in lockdown, they're kind of finding they're going to do their family story that, you know, the, the pandemic is is part of their story now. So what implications does that have on who they are and their emotions and what they're, how they're navigating the world in this time? And you can't kind of, you know, your story is going to be very different because of what's happening in the world. So it's all connected, which makes it complicated, um, of course. So... Well, there's a show that I or a movie that I, I saw when I was flicking through Netflix. Um, 
contagion, no, contagion, uh, one with Brian Cranston where it's about a about a global pandemic and it was made about five years ago wow. and I can't bring myself to watch it because I don't want to be in another pandemic story but at the same time I'd be interested to know whether how closely it it, um, it follows what we're what we're going through at the moment. Yeah it's and it's all I mean even themes as well I mean my the work I'm working the manuscript I'm working on deals a lot with death and, and grieving and it's very tactile and and obviously now the death is very different at the moment. It's, mm. um, you know, you hear these awful stories of people grieving people on screens and, and so that, you know, it's going to shift a lot in terms of narrative and everything. So, yeah, and I mean, going off topic, but it all comes back to biography because that's kind of people's experiences are what's happening in the world as much as it is who they, you know, you bring to you bring to the table who you are, but it's obviously what's happening is you're reacting to that as well. So, yeah, I'm kind of reminded of my my friend Phil who was living in Peru, and um, on Day of the Dead, he went out to uh, <laughs> went out to the cemetery where everyone's sort of having picnics and things by the graveside with their, you know, and he saw a woman sitting there by her husband's grave, and uh, and he went over to uh, a local woman. He went over and he said to her, "You must feel very close to your husband on a day like today." And she went. Why would I? He's dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, so is that something that you find tricky when you're interviewing someone is bringing, putting aside your own interpretation of how things are and, and letting them give their own? Yeah. Um, and it's also not only that, I think it's also um, the family themselves. So, um, so the two, so 10 years ago, kind of how I got quite fascinated in biography in the first place. I was living in Melbourne and I thought, oh, oh what I'll do is I'll start a business writing people's stories, little, putting little books together, which obviously never panned out because, you know, you need to pay rent and the like. But I actually sat down with two friends' grandparents and wrote little books of, of their life. And what was really funny was, that, you know, that the families, they weren't offended, but they were like one guy especially, it was all about his career. He had this gorgeous family, but he was a doctor and that was his passion and his whole life really was defined by by that and kind of you know then the family reading that it's kind of like oh okay so that's how that's what that's who he is so it's kind of um and they talk about when I spoke to the ladies doing the palliative care it's also that aspect of you know creating this document and and how this person and it's very you know one-on-one -on -one and how this person sees how they lived but then kind of cross-referencing that with how the family thought things were um not just from an accuracy point of view but obviously you know how they saw themselves and it it, it can be quite different to yeah, how yeah, that person thought they did. Um, so for anyone who hasn't watched your video, and I can recommend anyone who is interested in this should go and watch it. It's on our YouTube channel, Westwards Official. But uh, Emma, if you would you mind talking just a little bit about the palliative care stuff you're talking about, how how the biography writing and the, and the palliative care blended together in this project you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so essentially, um, I can't even remember how I came across it. I think I was, um, I think it was back when I was actually first interested in biography and I came across, um, it's called the life writing model. And what it was is looking at people who are coming to the end of their life. And there was a whole group of people in the medical profession who kind of realised that it's a very medical, I, I haven't, you know, had to actually have someone in palliative care myself, but um, from talking to these women and other people, it can be very medical and very much kind of focused on saving the person or kind of very much on the on the cells of their body. And so they kind of thought about, well, what 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 can we think about in terms of 
of making them, you know, addressing the psychological aspects of, of accepting end of life. And they realised that, um, that people at the end of life can be really quite confronted by thinking about how they lived on the planet. You know, they haven't got, you know, they're about to kind of leave um, and they start to reflect on, on, on their life. Um, and so this idea, there's two different kind of areas of research. The first being the life writing model where um, volunteers sit down with people in palliative care and, and actually talk with them about their life. And the idea is, I found it really interesting because as we spoke about earlier, it's actually a form of therapy. So they've done studies where, you know, these people talking about their life and realising the impact that they had can actually be as effective in terms of therapy as talking to a psychologist or, or things like that. So it's kind of coupled with all of the palliative care um, therapies, which are all about kind of comfort and giving someone quality of life at that period at the end. So it's, it's almost become a bit of a, it's part of a, um, like a, I suppose, a medicine of sorts, this biography writing, um, which I found a really interesting kind of evolution of biography coming, you know, when you look at the history, it started as, as capturing, you know, mainly men, um, you know, men in war and, and kind of having these documents that can kind of um, make people idols. And now it's kind of become a therapy where people talk about their lives. And, and so I kind of felt that really fascinating. And so, yeah, the, the, the process, it started, um, there's two hospitals in Sydney um, that are doing it at the moment and one being uh, the Western Sydney LHD, which is how I um, spoke to the two ladies there. Um, yeah, and they said it's such a fascinating process that obviously they, you know, they, they work, they've worked with numerous people now and they work with them and they end up with a document that they can give to loved ones. And, yeah, they've heard of families kind of reading from it at funerals, um, but also just the, the process of the people being interviewed, regardless of the book at the end, just find it very um, satisfying to kind of reflect on on what impact they've had and 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 the lady I spoke to who was a volunteer said it's really common that they don't realize the impact they've had and and kind of have to you know as we talked about the the questions and and making them see themselves in the way that that you see them is is someone that has had this really full life and mm. people don't realize I think you know they compare themselves often to you know everyone loves to put their best selves all over the internet these days and, and it can make people realize but yeah, it's obviously just looking at that fullness of their life and capturing that. Yeah, because I suppose it, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly common that people at, who know, who, in a way, I guess it's a blessing to know that the end of your life is coming and not have it suddenly taken. But it's also, yeah. you know, also a, a challenging time of introspection when you're and commonly people will go, "What have I achieved? Have I really made a difference in the world? Has it been all for anything?" Um, and so I guess what I hear you saying is that this process can actually help them reflect themselves on on what their achievements have been and the impact they've made. Absolutely. And I think what's beautiful is that's all from words. Like I kind of, you know, we all love words because they can entertain and they can make you feel something. But to think that words on a page can be a form of therapy for someone is, is quite beautiful to think about. And that can be so powerful at that stage of life is, is quite amazing that that area of research and, and practice is evolving and, and becoming so popular. Well, we're going to wrap up in a tick, but I'm going to put you on the spot very quickly. Um, hey. So let's, let's, if anyone who is listening is about to go out and interview someone for, for um, you know, they may not be the main person in the, in the story. They might be a side, a side character or whatever, but what, what, are the, what are the quick and easy tips you would give for how to go about interviewing someone in, the, in a way that isn't just going to waste everyone's time? 
So I think the most important thing is to make them feel comfortable. And it can be really simple things like choosing the right time of day, you know, if they're tired, stopping and letting them have a cup of tea. I think that sometimes that can be overlooked as kind of a bit of a side thought, but I think it's so vital in my experience is, is making them feel comfortable. And how you do that is, is make them feel like they're in control of the process. So I would suggest sending them the questions ahead of time. Again, it's not 7.30 report with the Prime Minister trying to get him on the spot. You know, make them feel like they're, <laughs> they're as prepared as you are, that they've got all their questions and um, and that kind of thing. Second thing is, um, yeah, so preparation is is really key. Preparing kind of an environment that's going to make them feel comfortable is really important. Preparing your questions, and as we talked about earlier, not just preparing the questions that go through early life, career, family, you know, you do have those stock standard questions and, and definitely preparing it, preparing those, but also preparing um, how you're going to approach those questions. So preparing to really think about um, listening to yeah, listening to them intently and um, reacting to things that they might say, using follow-on questions and open-ended questions, and really trying to uh, think about how you're going to get someone to talk in vivid detail about something. So um, as opposed to saying, you know, if they said, oh, I did a paper route. Oh, great. That's great. Well, oh, actually, okay, cool. Was it? Did you do it in winter? Was it cold? What did you use the money for? You know, if they say something, kind of try and think about specific details and and that kind of might be where your mermaid monkey moment might come from they might tell you that they you know little crazy story about their their paper run so kind of preparation in terms of making them feel comfortable preparing your questions and preparing a way that you're going to ask the questions and then the third thing is having any other prompts um, whether it be photographs music or kind of research about historical events during their life that might also be something you could talk about so, yeah, I think three quick takeaways would be just, yeah, preparing, um, making them feel comfortable, preparing your questions and preparing how you're going to ask the questions, most importantly, and then preparing any prompts, um, photos, music, and thinking about that context and the time that they lived and, and what you could ask about that and, and how they responded to, to various events. Well, Emma O'Neill Sandham, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate your time. And um, I hope that, that uh, anyone listening has found those, uh, this conversation interesting and, and enlightening and, uh, and helpful in their own pursuit of the great interviewer and, and, and the great biography. And it may not even be, it may just be a way of, it may not be a published biography we're talking about. It may just be getting some clarity from a grandparent or a parent about something to do with their own life that, um, you know, eases your personal relationships and all those sorts of things Absolutely. so thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for um being such a fun fellow we've had a we, we think we've um you seem to have enjoyed yourself and we've really appreciated what you've done for us so thank you for that oh no thank you for the opportunity i've had a fantastic time and yeah thanks for talking to me today no worries thanks emma thank you